Well, hey, welcome. Uh, welcome to the few and the proud, right? <laughs> it's funny, uh, whenever we do these core classes, uh, the first couple of weeks, people are like, yeah, core classes is awesome. And then by week four or five, you're down to, you know, basically the 30 or 40 people that, um, well, actually wanted to take the class. Um, so uh, glad you're here. Glad you've hung in with us. The, the cool thing about the Answering the Tough Ones class is that it really is like each week is, is a standalone class. I mean, we're covering a totally different topic. Now, obviously, as we've covered these topics, then uh, uh, hopefully you've gained some nuggets along the way that will help inform you in answering the other questions that we've been talking through. But, um, but as you've already known, if you've been here, um, we definitely have uh, covered a handful of good common questions we get a lot. Uh, week one was, is there truth? Can we know it? Week two, um, we, we covered uh, the compatibility of science and Christianity and kind of, hey, these don't contradict one another as long as you keep them in their place where they belong. Um, week three, we did uh, the reliability of Scripture and textual transmission and, and how did we get our Bible and how do we know that it's reliable and do we have the text and all that kind of stuff, um, which is a common uh, question we get from people. Then last week, we covered uh, probably the, the central question um, that is the center of the concentric, the theological concentric circles, which, by the way, I saw an article on the Gospel Coalition. I don't know if you guys follow that blog or not, but I would highly encourage you to. Some of the best uh, 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 content, as far as blog, blogs go, is on the Gospel Coalition. would highly encourage you guys to, to, uh, for that to be a consistent source for you. But I saw an article on there uh, just two days ago that wrote an article on the, the theological concentric circles and thought they did a really good job of it. Um, I hadn't really seen anything other than um, what we talk around, about around here out in the blogosphere, but they covered it anyway. And uh, tonight we're going to cover um, uh, what, what, is, what has commonly been known as, as a you know, problem throughout, uh, uh, throughout history, uh, um, at, known as the problem of evil. Um, this, is, this is an issue that's by far been... Um, is the most commonly asked question. It normally gets asked in, in a variety of different ways. And so a lot of times people are like, hey, what's the answer to the problem of evil, right? <laughs> it's like, well, who's asking, right? That's the first question because uh, each one of these things is an intensely personal um, issue that people are dealing with, which we'll, we'll talk about. And then next week, we're going to finish off this Answering the Tough One series um, with what is marriage and should same-sex marriage be Permitted, so that's kind of the one social issue that we wanted to tackle. It's uh, pretty, it's at least last summer anyway. It was really prevalent. It's been less talked about now, but that's not because it's not a big deal. It's because we live in a crazy world, and every other day something crazy is happening. Like today in Oregon, some nut shot up a school. Right, so they'll talk about that. You'll hear, um, you'll hear stuff about gun control, and then it'll go back to the fact that. Russia is bombing our allies in Syria and that we're giving Iran $500 million, you know, to develop a nuclear weapon so they can bomb Israel with it, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's just a crazy world. Um, but we, uh, um, we are going to talk through the, uh, the institution of marriage, what it has historically been, kind of trace that, and then talking about why we don't believe that same-sex marriage is the best thing for society. Um, so uh, definitely come back next week, invite your friends. If some, I know for sure people were asking me 
uh, when they heard we were doing this class and they wanted to know, hey, when are you going to cover that topic? Um, I was like, well, it'll be the last week. Um, and they were like, okay, well, I'll mark that down. So, like I said, you know, all of these are standalone. It's not like you have to, there's not a prerequisite. Um, some of you have asked about, hey, is this stuff online? It is. If you've missed a week, you can go on Watermark's website and, um, I guess, stream the audio. <laughs> I thought you could download it, but evidently it's a streaming deal. I'll check with our AV guys and see if they can do something about that. I'm sure it's probably an easy fix, but anyway. Um, tonight, we're gonna, like I said, we're going to be covering the problem of evil. And to help us with that is Matt Moss, who is going to team teach um, tonight. We're really excited about having him. He's been on our apologetics team here at Watermark, the Great Questions team, for... Okay, yeah. So about nine, nine months, nine, ten months. And um, uh, has an, he has an interesting story that um, if you want to come up afterwards and ask him about, I'm sure he'd love to tell you, but um, uh, was definitely not following Christ, had a lot of uh, obje- objections to Christianity, and um, was able to, um, you know, the, through the Spirit, work his way through those, and now gives a defense for the faith to people who are, well in the same boat you were in. <laughs> so um, it's, it's a cool deal. We're excited to have him here. So Matt's going to help us teach um, tonight. And by us, I mean me. Um, <clears throat> so typically the, the formulation, the problem that a lot, of, a, a lot of atheists, agnostics, and just basically people who want to level an accusation against Christianity, this is just an easy target. Um, and the formulation goes something like this. Hey, is God all-powerful? And the answer is yes, um, he is all-powerful. Hey, is God good? And Christianity would assert, yes, God is good. Um, then the, uh, uh, the third, or the, so those are the two premises, um, and, and then the, their, their conclusion, what we would say, um, uh, the, the accusation they level against Christianity is, well, if he's all-powerful and he's good, then why is there evil in the world? Um, and uh, the second part of that is, why is there so much evil, like evil's everywhere, um, which, which the implication is either God's not good, or secondly, um, he's weak. He's, he's not all-powerful. Um, so if God is good, if God is all-powerful, if God is good, why is there evil? Typically, when you're addressing people who ask this question, I mean, I've said this in here before, but I'll say it again probably multiple times, um, somebody's asked me a handful of times, uh, they, they said, hey, when people ask you a certain question, um, what percentage of the people are asking an intellectual question that's smoking, or smoking, <laughs> that's masking, um, or is kind of a smoke and mirrors for a deeper issue that they have um, a, a with God? And um, the answer is what? What's the percentage? Yeah, it's 100%, always, Okay. Um, that doesn't mean their intellectual objections are unfair or invalid. They are. Um, they're asking really good questions. But, but uh, typically, um, and, and yeah, I would say in every sense, um, we don't think in a vacuum. It's not just our intellect. It's, it's a, the sum uh, total of all of our experiences, emotions, uh, uh, predispositions, per- perceptions, um, all of the things that form that foundation for how we view the world. We talked about that on week one. Um, so typically when, when you come to this problem, you need to think about it in two different ways, okay? There are two different problems of evil. And the first one, and I would say the far more 
persuasive and, and powerful argument is the emotional problem of evil. Okay? This is the one that um, will, uh, um, for someone who, who even has, has followed Christ for a while, um, and, and is, has matured into, into their discipleship to Jesus, can encounter not just evil in like some ethereal sense and far off like I see it on the news, but you begin to experience it like in your own life. I got an email from a guy that I serve with today who has this crazy back problem um, that's just totally um, taken him out. And, and he, his, in his email today, he was like, pray for me, um, pray that I will... Um, be okay with the fact that this is where God has me right now, um, and that maybe even that God would answer the question, why is this happening to me, right? Um, he is experiencing, um, uh, in, in a very real sense to him right now, because it's very painful for him, um, that, that emotional um, why, right? This is the, this is the, um, uh, the time when Blake Holmes, my boss, um, uh, was on the, uh, I think it's the sixth floor or the ninth floor or something like that of Children's Hospital with his son because his son had been diagnosed with leukemia, right? And they're wondering like, hey, is he going to live or die? Um, he's, he is encountering the emotional um, problem of pain and suffering, the emotional problem of evil. Um, it's a very visceral um, response. For me, I mean... Um, you know, uh, when, when I was, um, you know, deployed in Afghanistan, experiencing very real, um, like traumatic events that, um, that, that, uh, very much make it like, Hey, this is not just evil out there. This is evil. Like in my face, um, I smell it. I, I, I'm tasting it. I'm experiencing it. And it bothers me like on a really, really deep level. Why, why is this the case? And and one of and and I'm not the not one not one of it's the central um, uh, most natural human response to evil being in your face is to first ask why is this happening to me and second of all if there is a God out there why is He not stopping it um, and so you just have to understand when you're encountering this problem um, with people. And, and even in your own life, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that everybody in here is, is exempt from this. In fact, none of us are. Um, but you, you do need to understand there's a difference between the emotional crying out of why God. In fact, I would even say, um, where do we see Jesus experiencing this? Anybody? Um, yeah, the Garden of Gethsemane for sure. And then what does he cry out on the cross? Why? Right um, now, I mean, he's quoting um, Psalm twenty-two, one. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, which I think that's really significant that we would mention that because I think it's part of the the answer to the problem of evil. But um, just to um, to start here, we have to start with the fact that um, there are two different problems, and the first one is the deeper and the more raw human emotion of encountering um, pain, suffering, evil, death, um, disease. Um, it's that deep-seated desire for um, us not to suffer, not to die. The other one is the intellectual 
side of the problem of evil. And actually, the intellectual side is, is far easier to address <laughs> than the emotional one. And so hopefully tonight we'll be able to give you some handles um, to actually engage and encounter um, both of them and, and to be able to give a defense um, when people ask you this. And they will ask you if they haven't already. They definitely will. Um, and so, so let's define evil because this is the... if you'll, um, You can follow along, obviously, with the slides and your notes, but then there's another handout that I'll kind of, we'll kind of track with a little bit um, throughout the night. Um, and so if you want to get that out, I'm going to um, talk on that just a little bit real quickly um, before Matt uh, comes up. So um, a lot of times when people think about evil, um, people think about evil in, in, uh, in a fairly um, detached uh, way so evil for them is is a problem that's out there that really that that is something that's that's happening to me it's or it's something that's happening to the world that I live in it's injustice it's inequality it's 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 pain it's suffering it's disease and most of the time when we think about it we think about it like it's a problem that's outside of ourselves right and so um, and typically, in the, the two probably uh, primary worldviews, when you encounter people who are asking this question, you need to understand the, the perspective that most of the people are coming to the table with. Um, are, pretty much most of them will fit into these two categories. And the first one is dualism. Okay, It's kind of this Zoroastrian... Um, uh, you guys heard of Zoroastrianism? It's, it's one of the, the ancient religions of the world. And it's, it's the foundation for the whole like yin and yang, the, the good versus evil... Um, uh, in, in Zoroastrianism, the, the two kind of the good is, is uh, uh, Ormhurst, and the evil, the devil, is Akriman, right? And these two beings are at odds with each other. In fact, some of the earliest um, Persian type um, you know, artifacts that we have is Ormhurst and Akriman fighting each other, right? Um, it's this dualism type deal. And in dualism, um, good and evil are independent entities. In other words, good is able to stand alone by itself, and so is evil, separate from good. So evil is not tied into good in any kind of way, and good is not tied into evil in any kind of way. They're two independent entities, and they are um, at war with one another. So the, the, um, that's, that's the uh, worldview. There's a lot of problems with that, um, which we'll get to. But, but ultimately, what that does is it leaves... Um, it leaves good and evil to be defined totally subjectively. You, um, what ends up happening is good and evil become just the, uh, uh, the preference of the individual who's looking at the situation. So the way, I'd like to talk, the way I like to think about it is, is if you go into, uh, if you go into a, a, you know, a, a cancer ward and the oncologist comes and says, hey, we're going to do surgery on this, on this the uh, malignant tumor that you have, um, and we're going to get it out, right? You as the patient are looking at this from your perspective. And so when, when the oncologist comes and says, hey, I'm going to get, we're going to have to do surgery and take this tumor out, and we're going to get all of the cancer out of you. For you, that's like great news, right? Because you're like, hey, this is good, and I'm looking at something that's evil. Get it out of me, right? And so the surgeon goes in. Um, will wound you actually to get this out of you, um, and then you're you're cancer free, right? Praise um, well from dualism standpoint, praise the surgeon, I guess. Praise yourself. <laughs> um, so, 
So, um, however, though, if you look at it from the cancer's point of view, then what's happening is, is I am at home in, in someone's flesh and am, uh, uh, a par- I'm, my parasitic existence depends on um, uh, biological human flesh for me to flourish. And so this is my home. And now some invading party is coming into my home and is cutting me out and ultimately is destroying me, right? So from the cancer's perspective, is this a good or a bad thing? This is a bad thing, right? And so, um, it, so someone may say, well, is getting rid of cancer good or bad? And the answer is, from a, from a dualistic standpoint, is it totally depends on who you're talking to. Um, is... Uh, in, in, in World War II, when the Allies fought the Axis powers and Germany fell, um, did Germany think that this was a good thing? Did the Nazi regime think it was a good thing? No. From their perspective, this was horrific. From the Allies' perspective, you have VE Day, you have VJ Day, you have, um, you have the end of the war, you have people celebrating the street, random women kissing random men in the streets, right, in Times Square. I mean, it's a world party, right? And so... Um, from dualism's perspective, you cannot say that something is totally good or something is totally evil because you are defining reality entirely um, subjectively based on your own perspective. Um, and so based on that as well, the outcome of that struggle, just like World War II or the cancer and the oncologist, um, the outcome of the struggle between good and evil is uncertain. And we don't even know which, we don't even know which one to call them. Good may be evil. Evil may be good. We don't know. Um, and, and so the, there, it becomes this extremely subjective um, experience that changes over time. Um, it changes as much as, as we change, as, as much as our emotions change, as much as circumstances change. Everything is constantly changing. And so um, ultimately, and I think what we want to communicate out of these first two uh, worldviews is the, the natural angst that you have in your, in your human experience um, for evil. When, when, a, um, when a child is brutally attacked and raped and killed, right? Um, f- from, um, from a dualistic standpoint, where, where, whereas good and evil are subjectively defined, then you have no right to say that that was evil. It may be evil for you, but for Ted Bundy, right? Who actually said, my acts were not evil because evil is subjectively defined and I define them as not evil, right? Then, um, then for him, that's just an out- natural outworking of his um, naturalistic worldview of that's just the way that I am. Um, and that's good. So um, th- this, is, this is a one-way ticket to um, that, that natural um, just revulsion that we have toward evil um, under these worldviews, you don't have the right to hold that because there is no objective standard to say that it's good, to say that it's evil. Similarly, the other, um, the other uh, worldview that we'll look at is naturalism. We've talked about naturalism before, and I've bashed it, and I wish I could continue to bash it because it's totally nonsensical. It does not work. Um, but in, in naturalism, only the observable natural world exists. If, if we can't, kind of the five, you know, the, the five senses, if we can't taste, touch, see, hear, smell it, um, 
then it does not exist. And, and if we cannot, um, if it's not helping us to uh, uh, evolve as a human race and, and, and ultimately progress to some kind of standard that we don't even know, we don't even know where we're evolving to because we don't have anything to measure it against. We just are, are in some way saying, well, we're better off today than we were yesterday, but how do we even know that? Um, there's a lot of questions around that, obviously. But only the observable natural world exists, which means... Um, there is no standard over and above the natural world for us to actually say that good is X and evil is Y. Um, so no standard for delineating good and evil exists in, in naturalism. And, and if no standard for delineating good and evil exists, just like when dualism, then point number three is then there is no objective evil. Right? So, and, and like I said, this contradicts the universal inherent human sense of right and wrong. Um, so in Afghanistan, I don't. I keep talking about Afghanistan just because my my experience, but it's also in the news a lot. So um, I don't know if y'all been paying attention, but uh, recently this uh, uh, Sergeant First Class, the Special Forces soldier, um, got in trouble and was and has actually kicked out of the army um, because an, an Afghan national police officer um, was repeatedly sexually assaulting and abusing um, uh, like a ten year old boy, and which is common in their culture. Right, it's it is extremely common. Um, in fact, one of the one of the social status symbols for wealth and and position in Afghanistan is for these men who gain position and status in society to have these chai boys around them. They serve them tea, and later these men um, sexually assault these boys on a consistent basis. And so, um, uh, in the midst of that cult, so someone might say, "Well, see." That culture thinks it's okay, so it must be okay. But even in the midst of that culture, this boy and his mother came to the, United, came to the U.S. forces to say, this is not right, this is abusive, right? They grew up in this culture, and they still know it's wrong. And they come to us for help, and this starting first class, I mean, I can just see it, like I wish I was there. But I can just see it, this guy like, calls the uh, A&P uh, police officer in and says, hey, this woman's accusing you of, of uh, sexual assault of her of her uh, of her son, repeated sexual assault, and this guy um, kind of shrugs it off like, yeah, but it's just a boy, you know, like that's his answer, and it sets off this sergeant first class. I mean, he totally just like loses it, beats the guy down, chunks like little. I think he was about a hundred meters from where they were to the exit of the uh, uh, of the uh, Ford operating base, and I think uh, the report that I read anyway said that he was beating the guy and tossing him. And then he would catch up to him, beat him some more, and toss him again. And he did that all the way until the guy was out of the forward operating base. And for that action, he got kicked out of the army, right? Um, because this guy admitted to this and, um, uh, and, and laughed at it, laughed at the evil that was being committed. Well, what I'm saying is, all right, like we have an inherent, like um, th- there should at least be, and I think there is, um, unless we have so suppressed it that it's, uh, extremely weak, but um, there is in all of us this sense of like, okay, when a, when uh, when someone in, well, and with any when anybody is a, is sexually assaulting a minor for the fun of it for for any reason, I mean for any reason, then that is reprehensible. That is um, evil. And what I'm saying is, if your worldview is naturalism, then there there then only there only exists um, what. Uh, is measurable in the natural world, which means there's no standard over and above good and evil wh- where, whereby you can measure what is good and what is evil. Therefore, 
when you experience that natural human, ugh, like, yeah, he got what he deserved, that sense of justice where there's injustice, then what I'm saying is you have no right to that. You cannot call it evil. Um, you, you can't call it good either. Um, you, you're, you can only call it, well, that's just what I would prefer. What? So C.S. Lewis is famous for, uh, for, for saying this in Mere Christianity. But he said, um, uh, he, said uh, he basically said, you cannot have an idea of a crooked line unless you first have an idea of what? A straight line. Um, and, and that's what we uh, measure uh, good and evil by. So, so we say um, God himself, like we, if you were here the first week, is there truth? The answer is resounding yes, and the, the truth is a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who came and said, I am the truth. All right, pretty clear. Jesus is truth. The scriptures that testify about him are true. Everything about reality is that's divine by him is true. Based on that, then we have a set of laws that God has passed down to us to say this is how you ought to operate, right? Um, to, to stay in the realm of what's true, you need to, you need to, um, you need to walk in this way and, and has given us um, a moral law. Um, and that is why we're able to say, no, what that guy did is crooked because we have an idea of, of an ultimate standard. So in that sense, um, evil is parasitic. It relies on good for its own existence. It's, what evil is, is evil is good perverted. It cannot stand on its own. Right? It's a leech. It has to, it, it, evil requires the existence of an ultimate good in order for us to call it anything at all. Right? So good trumps evil, and evil is parasitic from there. So if, so if, if we cannot define evil according to dualism or naturalism, which frankly is, are the, probably functionally the primary worldviews that people are coming out of, the people you're going to be engaging with, um, then uh, how do we define it and what's the Christian view of it? So Matt, come on up and take us through it. Make sure your mic's on, yeah. It's going to take a second. Scoot just a little bit. All right, test, test. There we there go. go man. All right. Thank you for coming. And uh, Nathan, thank you for the introduction. Um, I want to hearken back to something Nathan said uh, right at the beginning before I get into my section, because this section is very tactical uh, in terms of helping you guys, helping equip you guys to answer this very tough question. But before I do that, I, I just want to go back to the issue of the emotional versus uh, the intellectual question of evil. And again, Everyone we get at Great Questions that asks this question, everyone, or at least almost everyone that you interact with that has this question, has an underlying personal issue of suffering in their life that they're dealing with. And so, you know, before we approach these biblical reasons, or uh, the biblical answer of why evil exists when God is good and God is great, let's first, I just want to encourage all of us to be sensitive to the fact that there is a personal suffering or a personal uh, pain that these folks are experiencing. And the best thing we can do and the best witness for Christ that we can be in those circumstances uh, many times is just to listen and just say, um, instead of launching into a 30-minute treatise on the difference between good and evil, just ask them, you know, how can I help you get through this? Uh, Or maybe it's, 
uh, what, what healing ministries at Watermark can I point you toward um, that can help you get through this? Or what community can I get you plugged in to help you get through this? Uh, that will be a much more powerful witness, and that will be a much greater expression of love in that circumstance than having a few you know, pithy answers to this question um, you know, right off the bat. So I just want to issue that as a reminder. But that being said, this section is going to give you, hopefully, uh, three great answers, responses to this question of how we can reconcile God's goodness, greatness, and the persistence of evil. And it's the Christian response. It's what does the Bible say is the answer to this question. So let's launch into that. Uh, sorry. Okay, so the three, th- uh, three reasons, I'm going to outline them here. You can follow along in your, uh, in your uh, notes, and then I'll dive into each one. The first one is that real love requires real choice. And we live in a real world, and God really loves us, but our real choices have consequences. Okay? Second, there's a purpose to our pain. So there are many ways in which God actually uses pain for our benefit, for our good. And finally, there will be a time when evil and suffering is dealt with and eliminated, and it will no longer exist. So God will express his sovereignty and his power and his goodness ultimately and eliminate evil. So that's the spoiler alert, and uh, let's dive in. This, this, uh, this first answer, the, the idea of there being real choice, uh, that, that God is love and there's real choice to either love and not love, this first answer to the question, I just want to preface it by saying this is probably the most that uh, uh, requires the most knowledge on behalf of the listener to really get it. So if the person asking you this question or you yourself are here and you're not a believer, uh, this will probably take some pre-work to just establish some facts. And the first one is the nature of God. Now, for those of us in this room that are believers, that are committed Christians, we take it for granted, but the fact is that this, the scriptures tell us over and over again that God is characterized by his love for humanity. In fact, 1 John 4.8 says that whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Um, God throughout the scriptures is, is pictured as a loving father, uh, and, and we are his children. And it's not just any father, but it's a perfect father who loves unconditionally, completely, and passionately. So God is pictured as this loving father who wants a relationship with us, that wants a loving relationship with us. Uh, and that is, that is the backdrop for this, this whole scene and, and our choices. Now, the sticky part about real love is that real love requires the choice for someone to not love you back, right? To reject the overture of love. I mean, if you think about it, when I leave and go home to my wife tonight after this meeting, uh, I'll knock on the door, and if my wife comes up to the door and in a very robotic voice says, hello, Matt, I love you because I am programmed to love you. This is kind of like my dance moves from the 90s. If she does that, then, I mean, any outside observer would say that is not, that's not a real loving relationship. That's just... just, Or you just trained her really well. Exactly. (laughs) And and to be clear, some nights that's an upgrade over over what I would get as I come to the door. But uh, in general, someone would say, no, I mean, that's not love. That's a robot. And that's the reality of our relationship with God. And, and like I said, he wants to have a loving relationship with us. He doesn't want robots that are pre-programmed to love him back because that is not real love. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look throughout the, the history of 
human existence that's documented in the Bible, starting all the way back in Genesis. Uh, if you recall, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God plants the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And he, he gives them a warning. He says, if you, um, you can eat from any of these trees, but if you eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Um, so he offers them a choice, and they can either respond in trust and love and obedience, or they can reject that. And we all know what happens. Uh, they reject that, and that you know, sets the, the course of human history in the direction of our continual rejection of God. But remember, he gave us that choice to obey and love him back. And that's, uh, and in the Bible, what we call that choice, that choice of rejecting God, disobeying him, and not loving him back, the term for that in the Bible is sin. Uh, John 14, 21 says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, Jesus is saying this, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me uh, will be loved by my father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. So the choice to not love God is, is what the Bible calls sin. And the problem with sin is that it has consequences. And evil and suffering are the consequences of human sin. Now, some scholars, some biblical scholars and researchers have looked at the, uh, the issue of suffering. And, by some, and some of them have even tried to quantify you know, how much of the suffering we experience in this world is due to human sin, due to you know, just one person uh, taking an evil action on another. And mo- most estimates are around 90%. 90% of the suffering in this world is the direct result of human sin. Uh, if you look just back at the last 100 years, the, uh, the most powerful atheistic regimes in the world, Nazi Germany, Communist China, Communist Russia, have been responsible alone for over 100 million deaths. That's more than all the natural disasters combined that have happened during that period, okay? And, and some, will even go, some scholars will even go as far as to speculate that some of the natural you know, disasters and suffering that occurs is the indirect result of human sin, uh, potentially because of you know, what we're doing to the environment for selfish reasons. Uh, but at a minimum, uh, most scholars agree that, that most suffering that exists in the world is the direct result of human sin. So... The, the bottom line on this, it, well, before I get to that, look, one question that may come up is, well, Matt, what, I understand that, that we sin and people rebel against God and that's the source of evil, uh, but why can't God still intervene? Uh, you know, for example, why, why can't he uh, intervene and stop people's evil actions before they, they hurt someone? Uh, why doesn't he stop a drunk driver from committing an accident or a lazy worker from building a substandard house that you know, falls apart, or a father who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, why don't we stop him before he harms his, his children or his, uh, his wife? And the, the issue with that is um, it gets a little sticky when you think about, okay, where would God draw that line? And depending on where you, he draws, you draw that line, you may not be happy with the consequences of that. So, for example, let's say that God not only blocks extramarital affairs, but he actually steps in and prevents you from watching your favorite TV shows or movies that have sexually explicit content or cause you to fantasize about someone that's not your spouse. What if he doesn't just stop true thieves, but he prevents you from fudging your taxes or your expense report? 
Uh, what if he not only stops murder from actually happening, but he stops you from having uh, thoughts, evil thoughts about someone else or gossiping about someone or, or thinking about harming them before it actually happens? So you know, depending on where you draw that line, you might not be comfortable uh, about God actually intervening in our lives and stopping uh, evil from occurring. Or you could ask, why doesn't God just remove all these people that are, that are committing these evil acts, remove all these bad people? And for the Christians in the room, I'm sure you know where I'm going with that. Uh, the answer is he'd remove all of us, right? Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and shall fall short of the glory of God. So if God actually did intervene and, and remove all of the evil people, uh, we wouldn't be here tonight. Matt, can I interject yeah. real quick? Um, so I think that this is an important point because I said before, a lot of times we, th- uh, we people that you're engaging with and maybe even yourself think of evil as some far-off distant thing that's on the news or affects you in some way, but you fail to realize that the ultimate source of evil is who? It's your own self, right? It's people just like you acting out in ways that affect one another who in turn act out in ways that affect one another, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. And, And that's what most people fail to see is that the desire for the eradication of evil ultimately is your desire for the end of yourself, it's, it's for your own non-existence. Um, and and most, most people fail to see that pretty obvious point, right? So Yeah, yep. that's great. Thank you. Yeah, so the bottom line, like we have on the slide up there, is, is God did not create evil. He's not, he doesn't perpetrate evil. He doesn't execute it. But he did create a system in which evil is a possibility. And I think uh, if you really think about the nature of love and what's involved in it, um, that's not only sensible, but I think we'd all agree that it, that it beats some of the alternatives. Um, so uh, instead, God gave us a real world where we have real choices and real consequences. So let me, uh, I'm going to run a video right now, uh, and a woman with a much cooler accent than I have is going to uh, cover the same topic. Let's make sure the volume's up. Is God good? If he is, why is there suffering and evil? Let's assume for the moment that God is all-powerful. This means that God can do anything that is logically possible. So he can create galaxies and subatomic particles and rainforests and you. But God cannot do what is logically impossible. He cannot make a square circle or a one-ended stick. So can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. So what if, when God created human beings, he wanted them to be free? Freedom's a good thing. But if humans are to be free, they cannot be forced to obey God. Because freedom without choice is like a square circle. It's a logical contradiction. No choice, no freedom. God didn't want robots. He wanted real people. The first humans endowed with the awesome power of free choice abuse their freedom. The tragic consequences of their bad choice and our bad choices ripple across the world. God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but humans are responsible for their acts of freedom. But let's remember, we don't suffer alone. God will put an end to suffering and evil. And God became a man to suffer with us. God is good, and he wants real people like you to know him. But the free choice is yours. All right. Okay. 
Reason number one, why uh, evil exists, uh, it's, the, it's the flip side of love. It's the flip side of us having a loving God. Number two is, uh, believe it or not, there is a purpose to our pain. Um, God, uh, throughout the Bible, is shown to, be u- to use pain for our benefit. God, and we know that God works for the good of all who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And we, we see this manifested in several ways throughout Scripture. I'm going to list four of them, and you might be able to think of others. The first one is that pain protects us from ourselves when we won't listen to God. Uh, any parents in the audience tonight? Is anyone a parent? Okay. Uh, every, everyone in here who's a parent can resonate with the idea of having children deal with either natural or manufactured consequences when they don't listen to us saying things for their benefit over and over and over. So the proverbial, you know, the hot stove. You tell your, your little kid not to touch the hot stove. You tell them over and over again, that's going to hurt you. This is bad for you. Please don't do it. And they do it anyway. They touch the stove. Ooh, that hurts. And you're like, well, at least now they learned. You know, they, they, dealt, they dealt with the natural consequences of, of their disobedience and their foolishness. And uh, again, throughout Scripture, we see this, this happening many times where God will allow the nation of Israel to uh, experience defeat at the hands of their enemies when they, when they reject him or, or worship other gods. Um, and, and it's pretty clear that this happens. If it happened in the Bible um, throughout recorded biblical history, it most likely happens today. So, you know, things like bankruptcy, uh, hangovers, um, getting outed on Ashley Madison if you're uh, having an adulterous affair, getting caught in lies. Uh, these are natural consequences of our failure to observe God's instruction through the Bible. And in many cases, God will use that pain to, to bring us to repentance, to humble us, and to lead us into followership of him. Uh, Proverbs um, 3, 11, and 12 uh, in, in Proverbs three eleven and 12, Solomon says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, a son he delights in. So uh, we can expect God to, to use actions, to use these consequences that are sometimes painful for our benefit, to train us in his ways. Second way that God can use pain is to draw us closer to him. Uh, another question, has anyone had a job where you went through a season where you were working crazy hours, terrible deadlines, uh, maybe traveling all over the place, or, or maybe you've had military experience where you've been in the line of fire or dealt with combat. Anyone had an experience like that in their professional career? Okay. When you look back on that time and you think about the people you, you were you know, laboring with and working with in that situation, uh, you know, months or years after the fact. Do you ever think about the bond that you have with those individuals? In my experience, and I've worked as a consultant for many years, which is almost like combat in terms of the, um, the hellacious uh, hours and clients and, and travel. Uh, but when I look back at the relationships I had with folks that kind of I went to war with in those situations, the bond that we had is just much different than the relationship I have with the guys on the street that come over to watch the Cowboys game. You know, or the people I, I talk to, you know, at the grocery store or, or even some of my family members because we've been through something together. We, we, you know, we battled together. We had to depend on each other. We, we um, supported each other in a time of need. 
Similarly, uh, folks in the Bible, you look at, uh, for example, the story of Joseph from Genesis. You know, Joseph was in prison, uh, you know, unjustifiably put in prison for an affair he didn't commit. He was in prison for a long time, and three times in that story, the Bible tells us that God was with Joseph. It doesn't say that in a lot of other stories, but it says God was with Joseph during that time. And similarly today, many, many folks that are experiencing suffering, acute suffering, that's the first time that they'll either reach out to God and look to him as a possible Lord and Savior in their life, or if they're a believer, those are seasons where they find that they gravitate closer to him, and that's where a lot of spiritual growth happens. And if you look at um, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, it, it really, you can tell that Paul got this concept, that, that real spiritual growth and connectedness to God came through suffering with him. He says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, uh, in many ways, these sufferings and, the, and these painful moments are a catalyst to our spiritual growth or our connection to God, which, of course, is a great thing. Third purpose for pain. It can uh, deepen our character, uh, and it has a purpose. How, how many of us know older folks in our lives that we look up to um, because of their character, because they're seasoned, because they've been through, been through some stuff? You know, they've had a, a sick child, or they've lost a job, uh, or they, they themselves have, have been sick or dealt with hardship or poverty or whatever. Uh, and, and why do we respect those folks? Why do we, want, why do we gravitate them to them? It's because of their character. Either they, they have patience or humility or endurance, compassion. Their character has been strengthened because of that suffering, because of what they've been through, because they've endured through the pain um, that God has introduced or allowed to happen in their life. James uh, writes in, uh, here you go, James ha- uh, writes in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And it's hard to consider it pure joy when we suffer trials. But again, that's part of God refining us and shaping us to be the man or woman he wants us to be. And finally, uh, pain can be part of a story that ultimately glorifies God. Uh, many of us remember in the wake of 9-11, uh, the responses, the heroic responses of the first responders, or even the responses of people that weren't directly involved, you know, supporting each other, um, counseling each other, praying for each other, uh, it, it all served to glorify God. Or even more recently with the um, South Carolina shootings at, the, at that church in the Bible study, you know, seeing those members of that Bible study or the family members of folks that were killed get on a video conference with Dylan Roof, and the first words out of their mouth is, I forgive you. And the rest of the world is just looking at that in disbelief. Like, don't you get it? I mean, he he killed your son. How could could you be that gracious? Um, And think about how much that glorified God, that pain and that suffering glorified God. In the New Testament, we see the story of the disciples bringing a blind man to Jesus and saying, Jesus, what gives with this guy? Did, did this man or his parents sin? What, what's the cause of this? And, 
And Jesus responded, uh, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the work of God may be displayed in his life. And as it turned out, you know, Christ healed him and there was a work of God displayed in his life. But we see that all the time in the midst of suffering and pain. Um, The last thing I'll mention on this topic, and I think this is more for, for us to keep in mind when we're talking about the issue of pain, is that you know, when you're, when you're in the middle of pain, when you're in the middle of, of a season of, of anguish, it's hard to remember that pain, while prevalent in this world, it is temporary and, uh, and it, is, it is not the norm in our lives. It's temporary and it's not the norm. If you're, if you're in a drought, it's hard to remember that seasons of periodic rain are the norm. Or, or conversely, if you're in a flood, it's hard to remember in that moment, that normally things don't flood. Uh, but the reality is that, and, and this is, again, this is kind of just for you guys to keep in mind in, in the background when, when you're answering these questions. Keep in mind, most people live their whole lives uh, completely blessed by God. You know, God provides for them materially, spiritually, relationally. They live their lives blessed by God, but basically ignoring that and forgetting all the good things he does. And then when a season of pain comes along, you know, they get mad at God, they blame him, and they feel like he owes them something. And let that not be said about us in this room. Let it, let it not be said that we, we don't recognize the blessings in our lives. You know, as I personally look back at my life, um, you know, upon reflection, I, I mean, I feel like it's a winning lottery ticket. You know, God's blessed me with a wonderful family, a, a relationship with his son, you know, direction on how to lead my life. But I've had seasons where, you know, I was in a divorce home with no dad, uh, we were in poverty for a couple of years. Uh, sexual abuse is part of my history. But again, if I look back at the big picture, um, God's the life God has blessed me with has been, uh, uh, you know, been a blessing. So, I think that's the second thing we need to keep in mind uh, when we answer this question. Did you have? Uh, oh, okay. Sorry, I thought you were raising your hand. Okay. Uh, finally, and the most encouraging of the three reasons that. Uh, that evil exists. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, is that it won't always exist. In the end, when the, when the scoreboard hits double zeros, God wins. And uh, the thing is, God will conquer evil. The, the scriptures are clear. Uh, the last book of the Bible tells us this. Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So God conquers evil. Um, you know, the latter part of Revelation, Revelation 6, 17, gets into the, the war between evil and Christ. And uh, God will ultimately win that battle. Now, the one thing to keep in mind, though, is that this happens on God's timing, not ours. Uh, lots of times when we pray or when we're suffering, we want it happening now. We want the answer now. We want the suffering to end right now. And that's not how it works. It's, it's going to happen in God's perfect timing, not ours. You see, in 2 Peter uh, 3, 8, and 9, Peter says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And this is something we should be thankful for, right? Uh, If God eradicated, like Nathan was saying earlier, if God eradicated all evil uh, right away, 
you know, you and I wouldn't be sitting here in this room. So we should be thankful that he, that he is patient. And he wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, as it says in 1 Timothy 2. And uh, not just for ourselves, but for our friends, the folks that we're going to engage with on this topic. We should be thankful it's happening in God's timing and not ours, uh, because he knows a lot better than, than we. So God will conquer evil in his timing, and then ultimately creation will be restored and all will be right in this world. We see at the end uh, of Revelation, Revelation 21, 3 through 4, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So God will make things right. He is good. He is great, all-powerful, and sovereign, and he will uh, deal with the problem of evil in his time. Okay, and with that, I'll turn it back over to Nathan to wrap us up. Yeah, it's great, man. <clears throat> I think the uh, man. I think the the biggest point that I typically engage people on in in tying together an appropriate response to uh, giving a theodicy or a, or a defense uh, to the problem of evil um, is is the fact that um, just like we've covered. Um, well, in multiple weeks here, but especially last week, that uh, th- there was a man 2,000 years ago who uh, stepped into our reality, um, and this man claimed to be God, and he, he, he did extraordinary things about those claims to, to back them up, to validate his claims, and then um, he suffered, right? Um, uh, um, really, I mean, throughout his life he suffered, but especially toward uh, just like you and me, but but uh, d- toward the end of his life, um, he suffered, and then and then he actually met the end of his life in excruciating pain, right? And and what not just a, it, it wasn't a just pain; it was an it, it was pain that was uh, the result of injustice, um, uh, the the worst the worst kind of pain, and. And yet what we see, and I think this is what Matt was getting at at, at the very end, that I think is absolutely crucial to understanding um, uh, the, the Christian view of evil, is um, you see that the evil that took place on the cross that Jesus was a victim of, that that was not the end of the story, right? Three days later, he gets up from the dead. He defeats death. He, he defeats evil. Um, he's alive, <laughs> right? And so, I mean, when we think about, well, yeah, we're experiencing evil in, in, in this world, and I think the, uh, the passage from uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 4 as well is, is, is informative to us. Like, this momentary light affliction that we experience is creating for us um, a glory that, that far outweighs it, right? Um, and so, uh, if, if we're keeping things in perspective, I think what we'll end up saying um, when we are in the new heaven and the new earth, in, in the kingdom of, of God, as I think we'll look back and be like, man, in, in the grand scheme of things, that suffering we experienced, that evil we experienced was really minuscule in, in comparison to the amount of glory that, that awaits those who trust in God. And so I think the, the point is this, is that he's with us, right? Um, Hebrews chapter 2, I'll just read out of chapter 2 and then chapter 4. Um, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, namely Christ, shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. 
For surely it's not the angels um, he helps, but Abraham's descendants. He's talking about you and me. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help you and me when we're tempted. Whether it's through a temptation to sin, or whether it's a temptation to sin um, uh, that's, that's brought about by natural evil or evil that's committed by others around us or some kind of injustice that's done to us. Um, therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let's hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. C.S. Lewis said one time, he said, uh, um, he, said, he said, good men know about good and evil. Evil men um, don't know about either one of them. Right? Here's what he meant by that. Um, if you are... If you are good, and by good I mean like you have the righteousness of Christ in you, one of the very first things that you're going to realize, having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is one, um, how not good you are, (laughs) right, in comparison to Christ. And then as you struggle through the Christian life to increasingly yield your life to the presence and transforming power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will also understand how deeply evil um, the, the, more, the closer you get to God, the more deeply you understand how evil you are, um, or you, uh, identity-wise, how evil you were, right? And so if, if all you ever do is give in to all of your vices, and if all you ever do is give in to all of your desires, and all you ever do is give in, give in, give in, then you don't really know what it's, you don't, well, d- definitely you don't know what goodness is, but you don't really understand evil either because you haven't struggled against it. Do you see what I'm saying? And, and so I think what, what Lewis is making the argument about this is that ultimately, if you're asking someone who understands what evil is, then Jesus is the one who knows, right? Because here's a man who lived, and just like Hebrews says, was tempted in every way, just like you and I are, but he never gave in. Now there's a man who understands goodness and also understands evil in a way that you and I never will. Right? So before we go on and say, well, God, you can't be good because you don't understand what I'm going through, um, then we need to think about that first. Right? If Jesus has risen from the dead, then his claims about himself are valid. And if his claims are valid, then he's God. And if he's God, then he has not only entered into our reality to experience pain and suffering and evil, but he's done so in a way that, that trumps anything you and I could ever experience in our own personal lives. So the last thing we should do is cut off the one avenue and the one channel whereby um, we can gain solace, comfort, healing from the evil that exists based on the decision that we made to rebel against God. He is with us. (laughs) He took on the evil that um, uh, is so pervasive in our lives. He absorbed it so that he could give us the righteousness of God. He's the only one that can counter evil and reverse it. We definitely can't do that. And if evil has any meaning at all, then that is what he did. 
So what's a proper response? Um, and, and, and I'm going to echo a little bit of what Matt said, um, then we'll bring some of these other guys up. And, and as, I'm, 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 as I'm on this last slide, this will be the last slide that we cover. If you have questions, if you've been writing questions down or whatever, this red mic is going to be open, open mic um, so to ask whatever you want, um, obviously pertaining to the topic. Um, you know, uh, don't ask us why Tony Romo got hurt, you know. Um, I have no idea. Um, maybe the answer is God doesn't love the Cowboys. <laughs> um, but whatever. <clears throat> yeah. Um, anyway, whatever. <clears throat> so if you want to, uh, as I'm on this last slide, if you do have questions, feel free to move to the mic um, so you can be prepped to answer your question when I'm done. Um, so what's a proper response as we deal with both the emotional and the intellectual problem of evil? And I would just tell you, like, um, I, I do think that there is a time and a place to engage people with the intellectual problem of evil. I mean, and typically what I would tell you from, as, from a pastoral standpoint is this is best done not in a lecturing type sense that I'm doing with you guys right now. If you're sitting across the table from someone who's encountering the emotional or the intellectual problem of evil that they're really wrestling with, it's best to, it's best to instruct people um, through the technique of asking questions, right? So, hey, man, that's really interesting. Man, I'm, I'm so... I'm, I'm sorry that you're dealing with that. I really am. I'm empathizing with you. Have you ever thought about this? Right? Um, hey, you said something earlier that's really interesting. What did you mean by that? And have you ever looked at it like this? Right? Those are, those are non-threatening, non-invasive uh, questions that are drawing people out as opposed to, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. If you'll just do this, you'll be fixed. Right? You're not empathizing with people, which is exactly the first point. Empathize with people. Romans chapter 12, verse 15, the second part of that verse um, says, weep with those who weep, right? That's like, um, man, if somebody's weeping, don't go up there and be like, hey, stop crying, you know, unless it's your two-year-old son who's crying because he's trying to get attention and manipulate the situation, right? <laughs> then it's appropriate, like, stop crying. Um, <clears throat> stop crying or what? I'll give you something to cry about, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> only the parents, yeah, the parents. Anyway, um, but, but empathizing with people, because what you do, man, if somebody's weeping and you go and, and don't say anything at all and put your arm around them and weep with them, you have now truly uh, uh, the empathos, the the, the, you've entered into their pain um, with them, and, and you're, you're earning the right to be there, right? You're earning the right to say, hey, have you thought about this in a gentle way in, that's appropriately timed? Um, in a timely manner to introduce um, words of truth that can be healing for them. But, but man, I mean, almost, I would tell you probably 100% of the time when someone is in pain, um, then just keep your mouth shut, all right? Um, and if, they, if, they're, if they're venting, if they're asking a lot of questions to just emotionally um, get it off their chest, then just take it. Just listen. Um, don't say anything. Um, Tell them that you love them. Tell them you're praying for them. And then ultimately encourage them, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.14 just says, um, encourage the downhearted, <laughs> right? Um, go find a way to physically meet a need. Um, that, that's why I heard JP say a few weeks ago where he just said, man, the worst thing you can do in crisis care is to type an email to somebody and be like, hey, I'm really sorry you're going through that. How can I help? Question mark. Don't do that. What do you do? You think about... What's going on in their life right now? What are some of the obvious needs that they have that I can meet? And then don't even ask them. Just go meet the need, right? Show up at their doorstep with a meal, 
Um, call them and say, hey, I would, love to, I would love to grab your kids to give you the afternoon off. Is that okay? I'm coming I'm on my way over right now or something like that, you know? Um, just relieve them. Um, uh, for, for people, if, they, if there is a physical, tangible need that you can meet, I'm telling you, be the hands and feet of Christ because that's what you are in that moment to that person. In a very real sense, that is who you are. And then lastly, stay humble. Look, there is so much mystery to this issue. I mean, we've given you hopefully some good handles to, to think through this issue, but this issue is extremely complex, all right? It's, it's been a, a massive issue for thousands of years, and it's, it's not an easy one. So as you go um, and are engaging with people, just remember like, hey, um, at some point we, we, do, we can reach the end of our ability to reason, and we have to say, okay, I'm stepping beyond my ability to know, and I have to tell you there's mystery here, right? Um, so just stay humble, all right? So empathize, encourage, and stay humble. Um, Gordon Percy is also on the Great Questions team. Um, I think he's this. I think he ranks everybody um, in seniority. <laughs> um, but no, we he's he's been on the Great Questions team for a while, um, for a while. So come on up, Gordy. Um, he's going to help uh, help us out as far as the panel goes. And then Mark Rose, who was here last week, um, uh, who helped out with the the question on the resurrection, um, is also back to uh, help us out. So. Y'all can turn that mic on, and then you can just trade off. So um, now's the time for questions. Um, if you have any kind of question relating to this issue, the red mic over there is, uh, is fair game, so would invite you to move to the mic now if you have one. Uh, as you ask your question, just state your name so we can um, be friends. Hi, <laughs> state your name. And then... Uh, it should be on already. Hello? Yep, there you go. What's your name? Um, name's Kenny. Kenny, So um, I have a question um, reading through the slide. So we said real love requires real choice, and real choice includes the choice to sin and rebel against God and therefore have evil. So if we say there comes a time when evil and suffering no longer exists, does that mean that at that point we stop having a choice? Um, yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And... Um, I'll start on this one, if you guys are cool with that, mm-hmm. mainly just because I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, so uh, a part of my schoolwork is I'm working on in the area of, of spiritual transformation, dis- Christian discipleship. What does it look like um, to live in the love of God? And um, I think that um, what's interesting about um, the new heavens and the new earth is that um, it'll be unique from the garden because in the garden, um, Adam and Eve were... Um, uh, we, we would never say that Adam and Eve were perfect in the garden. We, w- we would say, theologically, that they were innocent, right? Um, and I think what, you'll ha- what we find in the new heavens and the new earth are people who were guilty already and have been transformed. Those are two different things. And so I, I do think while the, uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, the choice um, to rebel against God um, uh, will still be there. But the transformation of those who live under the love of God will be so total and so complete that even though the choice will still exist, nobody will choose to exercise that. Mm. Um, we've exercised it already. It didn't work. And the Holy Spirit um, is now transforming us um, into something that, frankly, Adam and Eve could never have been. Um, uh, and, and, and ultimately what Romans 5 says, um, that, that through the first Adam came death, through the second Adam, 
um, came uh, this new life whereby um, we've been uh, so transformed that our desires are um, for God and the love of God alone. Hmm. Um, so um, I hope that helps answer your question. Um, the, the simple answer is yes, the possibility exists. The second part of that answer is nobody's going to exercise that choice. Anybody want to? I, I think one of the things that comes to my mind when I think of this question is, um, is just to appreciate that, um, you know, part of that, that innocence but not perfect in the garden was that they were ignorant. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what evil was. Um, there, there wasn't anything special about the fruit. Uh, I, from my perspective, it was, um, uh, it was that they committed evil. They trespassed against what God had told them to do. And so that's how they gained the knowledge of good and evil, because they finally participated in what was evil. Um, uh, like he said, when we get, uh, when humanity is redeemed in the new heavens and new earth, it, uh, in the imagery that it gives at the end of Revelation, talks about, we don't need the sun and the moon and the stars because the light comes from God, mm -hmm. right? His mm -hmm. presence is fully with us. Our knowledge is complete about him. Um, and so we don't suffer from that same ignorance. Um, uh, yeah, and the only well. thing I would say about the fruit is the, the text makes it clear that the temptation from the enemy and that, that was symbolized in the fruit is that, um, is that Adam and Eve could be like God, knowing good and evil, that, that they would gain the wisdom of God, that they could be their own God. That's the, that's the essence of sin. And, and, and the last however long ago that was, so millennia or however long, we don't know, um, the course of human history has shown that us being our, go our own gods does not work. So it would be the same as like a guy that, you know, an alcoholic who experiences all of the ravaging consequences of being an alcoholic loses his family, maybe even his freedom, um, maybe, uh, you know, uh, vehicular manslaughter kills someone, right? And ultimately to the point where he's like, hey, I will never touch alcohol again, right? And doesn't. So someone is like, well, could he still? Yeah, of course. But, he, but something has happened in him that has been so transformative that even though he can, he, does, he, he doesn't want to anymore. I, th I think that's an imperfect, definitely it breaks down in a lot of places, but it's kind of like that. What's your name? Jody. Joni? Jody. Jody, sorry. Do we have any idea why God does or not does or does not intervene in the middle of an evil act or a you know a great evil force? Um, or is it just one of those things where God is God and we can't know the mind of God and then um, can our prayers change God mind, God's mind or cause him to move to act against evil? Yep, good. Thanks, Jody. Matt, you want to talk on that? Well, you don't let me... Have to. Yeah, no, the... Um, if you don't mind, I'll touch on the second question first. Uh, the, the question of whether or not we can change the mind of God... Uh, we do have some examples in Scripture of, of uh, humans, um, not clear, changing the mind of God, but, but uh, 
uh, having them elect a different path. I mean, there's the example of Moses petitioning God to not uh, destroy the children of Israel uh, in the Old Testament, and um, it, it says that God relented. And w- one way that um, is helpful to me, I don't know if this is theologically accurate, but, but a picture, an analogy that helps me is think about um, my kids. And, uh, you know, I certainly have a plan for them. I have goals. I have intentions. And going into a weekend, perhaps, I might, might even have a detailed plan of what we're going to do. But if they come to me and petition me and say, hey, Dad, you know, why don't we do this or that? You know, who knows? I might say, yeah, as long as it's still, with, still consistent with my will. Uh, and I think that's the key you see in Psalm, uh, I believe it's uh, Psalm 3, um, where it says, you know, if, um, if your desires of the Lord, if you're, um, I'm blanking. Delight yourself, in the, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of yep, your heart. So yep. if we're in God's will, um, I think there's flexibility there. So yeah, Blaise Pascal said, uh, God instituted prayer to give us the dignity of causality. Um, and, and I think that, that he's right. I think that, that God chooses to move, um, uh, and he chooses to move through prayer, right? So it, it's kind of like versus a, a fatalism type view that I don't think is Christian. That, that's like, hey, God's going to do what God's going to do. You don't have to pray. If you pray or not, like, whatever, it's all going to end up the same. So, so what, you know? And under that view... Um, the, the problems with that is, why, well, why do anything at all, right? Um, uh, I mean, uh, I've heard people say before, like, why put on a raincoat? Like, if God wants you to be wet, then you won't be wearing a raincoat, and he'll make it rain, you know? Kind of one of those things where it's like, well, that's ludicrous, right? Um, and so the, I think the, the opposite of that would be a more nuanced um, version of God is moving, and one of the primary ways that God moves is through your prayer. And, and, I, and in fact, I would say the primary way that God moves is through prayer. And I think Matt's right. The way I've pictured it, just to kind of nuance what you said a little bit, is I think God builds a fence generally to say, this is my will, I will accomplish this, you cannot stop me. And of all the votes that everybody has in the room, and everybody has a vote, my vote is the strongest, right? Ultimately, God is the strongest one in the room. So, um, he builds a fence and says, this is what's going to happen. Now, within that, I'm giving you an enormous amount of liberty to, to live, um, to honor me, to dishonor me. But whatever raw data that you're sending me, I will use that within the confines of my will to ultimately accomplish what I'm going to accomplish. So um, I think that's a pretty good answer to your second question. And I can't even remember your first question. So... Um, all right, sweet. Go ahead. I, th- I think I remember the first one as far as um, why doesn't he intervene in oh, yeah, yeah. specific accent. And so I, I think they kind of touched when they were talking on why doesn't he intervene in every specific act. Mm. Um, there are he, – he uses suffering. There is um, a purpose that comes out of suffering. And if he intervenes in every evil act, then choice is clearly gone. Um, um, maybe one other thing to, to think about is he – it does seem like oftentimes he, he intervenes in the midst of evil acts to limit or prohibit them at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, know, you just don't hear about it as much. You know, it's like you don't hear about the good things. Have, that's why they tell you not to watch the nightly news, right? Because they're just pumping your head full of all the bads that, that's gone on, and you can lose sight of all the good. And all the times that he does intervene, it's really easy to miss because... Honestly, we don't even know the full extent to that because nothing, the bad doesn't happen. 
you know. We might we call them close calls or or whatever. Um, uh, and then I think um, the more specific question that hits home a lot more, which is why doesn't he intervene in this that I'm in? That's really what hits home, and that's where the humility really kicks in. And to say um, whether you're dealing with yourself or uh, if it's if it's something happening to you, because we all struggle with this um, in a variety of ways, to go and talk to him about it. Um, uh, if it's someone else that you're that you're talking with, uh, say you don't know. Um, uh, be lead with I don't have a clue specifically why uh, this is. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know these general things about him. I've seen it work out in my life. Maybe give them some examples sometimes um, uh, where you're empathizing with them in the midst of the situation and showing them, man, I've, I've gone through really hard things. Um, uh, and I saw good on the other side. Like, I never thought I could have seen good on, uh, through this process, but there has been good in this situation. Yep. Yep. One other thing that uh, I feel like we were remiss not to cite this part of the Bible, but the book of Job to me is that I'm so thankful that God included it in the Bible because it gives such a unique perspective on this topic. And you see both uh, stories played out in the book of Job where God is not intervening and he's allowing Satan to um, test Job, but then in the end he does. Uh, and so um, that's an example of, of where he actually does intervene and cuts it off and says, that's enough. Yep. I'm going to restore Job. I think there's also, this presupposes too that um, thinking that God should intervene into, into every evil situation presupposes that we have all of the information mm-hmm. and would say, yes, he should. Um, when sometimes God not intervening in an evil situation teaches us through pain and suffering um, and actually prevents a greater evil that would have been yeah. had he intervened. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? So perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps um, God not intervening in Nazi Germany allowed World War II to occur to stop us short of nuclear holocaust that could have occurred had World War II happened a decade or two later. Mm-hmm. Um, we just, we don't, we don't know. And so to make a value judgment to say you should have because of that. I mean, it could be, and I, I think it probably is, the fact that God is, like it says in Second Peter, is patient, right? He's actually manipulating things, our raw data that we're sending him, to prolong and give us the greatest amount of chance to repent, as opposed to giving us, intervene in every sense, us not learning anything as good moral agents, and then all totally destroying ourselves in a really quick way, like a bunch of two-year-olds, right? Um, so anyway, that's what I would say. Gordy? Yeah, I was just going to give uh, one personal example of why I think sometimes God allows things to happen. And that uh, we, uh, when our uh, second daughter was 15 years old, uh, or 16, excuse me, she uh, gave birth to a baby. And uh, for right or for wrong, uh, my wife and I, we were pretty much devastated. You know, Christian family, these things aren't supposed to happen to Christians. And uh, so it was a real difficult time. And, you know, it doesn't probably rise to the level of suffering that a lot of people go through, but, but it was a difficult time for us. And, uh, you know, I, we, we wondered, well, why did God allow this to happen? You know, why didn't, you know, why did it have to happen to us? Uh, and there's a whole bunch of lessons we could learn, but uh, one of the things that I dreaded most was ta- uh, talking to other members of our family and explaining what had happened. And, uh, but 
I talked to my, when my brother and his wife, we sat down with them and we said, you know, we got to just tell you what's happened, you know, and told them about it. And the very first thing he said to me was, you know, our son Scott, and he started going into a whole long uh, account of the things that they have been going through. So uh, I think sometimes God allows us to experience difficult circumstances uh, because we can encourage others and... Uh, and I think you know that's what we experienced anyway. You got one more thing, or we kind of beaten that dead horse. Yeah. <clears throat> What's your name? Hey, man, my name is Tim. Tim, sweet. Hello. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, so more on the topic of suffering. Uh, I understand like genocide and you know murder or whatnot. I mean that can be explained uh, a lot by evil. You know, evil actions, freedom, free will, etc. Uh, that's fine. But how would you? Um, how would you? Uh, I guess respond to someone when they say, you know, two-year-old dies of cancer, like, like tragic, tragic things, like big deals that are not the result of some direct evil action. And I know that like, God, you know, can work all things for good, and, you know, for those who love him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, how would you respond to that? Yep. Peace. I'll start. Um, I think that, uh, again, I... Uh, Typically, when when and in fact, I, I rem, I'm remembering uh, Christopher Hitchens' voice in my mind right now, um, uh, giving a, a critique of Christianity, and he uses the example of babies with cancer and who are dying. Right, um, these these innocent, um, you know, human beings who haven't done anything. Right, and and uh, and I would just say to that, like uh, we we um, number one. Sin is so pervasive in the human condition that when, as soon as a child, in fact, I would say as soon as a child is conceived, we are conceived in sin. And so um, there, there's, there's no evidence whatsoever that would suggest that, um, that babies would be any more exempt from the disease of this world as a 14-year-old, 21-year-old, 48-year-old, right? You're just talking about time, um, not condition, not conditionality. And so... Um, while it's tragic, I would say that, I mean, um, it, it invokes in us a, a deeper emotional problem of evil than an actual intellectual one. Um, the emotional problem of evil is just, well, it's my responsibility to protect you, and I can't protect you from that. So I feel this really deeply. And I, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I mean, if my wife, if, if, if my son or sons started getting sick and we took them in and ran tests and, hey, you know, um, your kid has leukemia, <coughs> whatever, whatever kind of terminal disease it is. I would feel that same emotional response. Um, but again, I think at the same time, it also allows us to remember like, hey, this is the very evil that Jesus came into the world to absorb and to, to hand over um, to us the righteousness of God. And so, I mean, um, I... I guess while I appreciate and understand the fact that it's a baby with cancer, um, ultimately, from an intellectual standpoint, it doesn't have any bearing whatsoever the age of the human being. It's just in the developmental stage. Um, it's, it's early on in its stage. It's, it's like saying the same thing as like, well, it's, it's equally tragic that a 50-year-old has cancer. Um, it, the cancer is tragic. Um, the, the result of sin is tragic. Um, and it's the very thing that Jesus is, um, is reversing. So that's what I would say. Anybody else? I know that's a... Yeah. I'm just scratching the surface on that. I mean, it's a tough one. 
I think uh, one thing is that in our in Western culture and the culture that we live in too, um, uh, we like to um, ignore what Christianity actually teaches about sin and and just focus on the fact that we commit sinful actions and so then are responsible. Like Christianity teaches, it is an ingrained consequence because of what Adam and Eve did. And we don't like, like our individualism means we don't like the idea that anything or anyone would suffer for something they didn't directly do. But at the same time, if you really try to fill that out in relation to reality, that happens all the time. It's just part of reality Mm -hmm. because we are a web. We are not, we do not exist as individuals. We are all connected in a certain sense. Um, uh, more so than we like to admit maybe in our, in our cultural context. And so that's something to keep in mind too. Yeah, yeah and then just to build on that, Romans 8.22 says, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth yeah. right up to the present time. Uh, so to build on what Mark's saying, I mean, we live in a fundamentally broken world. This world is not as it should be, right. and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, including you know, the example you cited. Well, the other thing I would say, too, to, to Hitchens, who, by the way, is now dead, um, but, but uh, the thing I would have told him um, in that instance is, on what, grounds do you, on what grounds do you, as an atheist, have to believe that the, the child having cancer is actually evil? In fact, if you look at it from a purely naturalistic standpoint, it's like, hey, that kid is not strong enough to survive, so nature should just take it. That's actually, from a naturalistic standpoint, that's actually a good thing. Right. Otherwise, the kid becomes a liability on us and our ability to evolve into something more, more advanced. Hey, Lucy, what's up? Hi. Hey, guys, thank you. Um, so I've heard that one of the better responses to, or I guess questions for someone who has more of a pantheistic worldview, which I think is much more prevalent now with all the New Age spirituality mm. stuff, one of the better responses to that is to ask them how to explain evil um, and so would you, how would you say, do you find that's true for you guys and how you, when you gauge someone with a pantheistic worldview and how has that played out in your experience? I can start yep. everyone. So you don't have to start every time. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, <clears throat> so, you know, um, pantheism is a little tricky, um, uh, because, you know, and, and different people are involved in it in different levels. If you get some of the New Age people, they're just kind of dabbling in it, and they haven't really thought through it. And, and New Age and pure pantheism, you know, someone who's a Hindu or a Buddhist uh, would certainly be different, because the, with Hindu and Buddha, Hinduism and Buddhism, they're really saying there is no good and evil. Watch, you know, like um, my kids, and I mean, I like the movie too, if you've seen the movie Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> Right, the little tur- the turtle guy. Like, if you haven't, sorry, but like the, you can go watch it. It's entertaining. Maybe I don't know. You, you might you. think it's a little juvenile, but I think it's good. Maybe that says more about me. But the um, he says there is no good and bad. There is only what exists. That's that's what they say. Uh, the problem with intellectual arguments sometimes, not that it means you don't engage them to a certain extent, is that they don't think that that ultimately is what will lead you to truth. Truth is an experience. It's not knowledge. Um, uh, They also have the ideas of karma, which is usually where you'll hear them go. Um, But they're just inconsistent. The the two ideas are inconsistent. Um, uh, So it it can show them their inconsistency. That will really work with, honestly, the majority of people 
um, that you deal with because they're just dabbling and they haven't really thought deeply right. about it. Yep. Um, so that so it, it certainly can be effective with those people. I would say. Yeah. Nice. Cool. All right. Last question. What's your name? Hi guys. My name is Luke. Luke. Uh, yeah. Just what are your thoughts on why God in the first place allowed the possibility of evil, and that He put the tree, uh, or the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in the in the garden? Mm. Yep. Matt, Gordy, and you know, Gordy, you want to start that one? Or? Um, well, to me, it's related to the whole notion of, you know, God clearly, when he created the universe to begin with, uh, he knew where he was headed with it. And uh, so I, I believe that the, uh, the end result is, uh, is, is, a, is worth it. And, you know, that, that's about the only thing that I can really think of that... Uh, that makes any sense to me, at least. Yeah. Um, I, I heard a guy one time talk about, um, you know, why do we, why do we as uh, a husband and wife, why do we bring children into the world? There's a huge risk if we bring a child into the world that, you know, um, that child could turn against us, could go off into a life that is going to be uh, really uh, damaging to the child, maybe damage to other people. But we still have children. And why is that? Because the love relationship between parents and a child and, and growing up a person, you know, it's worth the risk. So I, I think that's kind of why God did it. Yeah. I, and I would, the only thing I would add to that is um, the, the short answer to why is the tree um, in the garden, um, whether it's metaphorical or literal, whatever, it's a whole other deal. Um, but, but the, the short answer is love. I mean, that's the, you know, when Matt was talking, like you, you cannot have love without real choice. And, um, and so, and, and all we know about reality, all we know about God, all we know about ourselves is that choice is intrinsic to the world we live in. It's intrinsic to who we are. It's intrinsic to who God is. Um, is that um, he, he will not, like the video said, make robots, but those who freely, through the transformation uh, by his spirit, um, love him, freely love him. And that, um, I mean, uh, I've heard people say, well, God could, could have created a system, you know, in which love could exist without the possibility of choice. And, and I, my answer to that is, um, well, um, that's just not the way that the, the world functions. Like, that's, those are hypotheticals that ultimately, as I've heard before, um, the problem with arguing with God to say you should have done it another way is... If this is a pool of water that's our ability to reason and the stream that's sourcing the pool of water is God himself, right? To say, hey, you should have done it another way is to, is to ultimately try to raise the water level above the source of, of the stream. It's impossible. Your very ability to reason, to argue with God, comes from God. <laughs> so it's a cold total catch-22. I mean, at some point we have to look at reality and say, hey, this is the way it is and now I'm going to seek to understand it. Um, so that's what I would say. Um, one more yeah, thing, just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just real quick. Like one thing, too, that I, I've, just as I think about this and I interact on this, is really to appreciate the fact, because I hear this misconception in church and, and different places at different times, is that just to remember, we're not working our way back to the garden. We're, way, we're working our way to something that has never been, like a, a kingdom and priesthood of people who are good. Like, and that, and that hasn't been. 
Um, we are fundamentally different than Adam and Eve um, at the end of this. Um, and so not let, sometimes that misconception, I think, can yep. hinder our ability to see that, see that bigger picture. Yep. Cool. Well, hey, we're, we went five minutes over, so I apologize. But thanks for your patience. Thanks for coming tonight. Um, we have the last class next week, which is the, uh, like I said, the kind of social issue we're choosing to tackle this time around, and that is what is marriage and should same-sex marriage uh, be permitted. So hope you guys have a great week. If you all have questions, we'll be down here, and uh, we'd love to hang out. So see you next week.